Hello, and welcome to the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast, brought to you by North Carolina Sustainable Energy Association. I'm your host, Ben Stockdale. Hello, Squeaky Clean listeners. This is Jarvis Arrington, the intern for the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast. Bringing the latest in clean energy right to your ears. Yes, sir. Now we are going deep into the earth for today's show. Ben, what are we talking about? Yeah, we're covering a source of clean energy that we really have not talked about yet on the show. So we're excited to give you an episode on geothermal energy with... NCSEA's own Daniel Parker. He is an expert on many forms of clean energy and geothermal is one of his areas of expertise. So we're so excited to have him on the pod today. Definitely. It's going to be a very interesting conversation that we are both extremely excited about. Uh, Ben, who's getting our country shout out today? We are saying hola to (laughs) to our friends in the great country of Mexico. Yes, we are. Yeah. So Thanks for listening to us south of the border. We're so happy you're joining us, and uh, we hope that you really get something out of today's episode because I'm not sure what the geothermal potential in Mexico is, but I would imagine there are some spots that are pretty conducive to it. So uh, you might particularly find this episode interesting. And Jarvis, who's getting our city shout-out today? Now, our city shout-out today goes to the great city of Denver, North Carolina, not to be confused with Denver, Colorado. <laughs> yes, but yes. just as great and just as cool. I would say even better probably. than Denver, Denver Colorado. Possibly, and, possibly. and no shade on Denver, Colorado, but <laughs> Denver, North Carolina is a special small town, and we have a few awesome listeners there. Yep. So shout out to them. Shouts out to you. All right. Well, without further ado, we introduced the show. We gave some shout outs. Seems like it's time to uh, jump into this episode. Yep, let's get into it. Let's do it. Clean energy. Clean energy. Our guest today is NCSEA's market research analyst. In this role, our guest's work focuses on quantifying the impacts of clean energy on North Carolina. Specifically, he works to collect and interpret primarily economic-related data about renewable energy projects in the state. He also contributes to reports and projects concerning specific topics relating to renewable energy technology, such as the interaction between solar PV and agriculture in North Carolina. Our guest today received his undergraduate degree in environmental science from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. When he's not obsessively watching Carolina basketball or being a (coughs) bandwagon LSU fan, he's lining up his putts on the golf course. He's been a supporter of the pod since day one, and we are so happy to have him on the pod today. Friends of the pod, let's give a squeaky clean welcome to today's guest, Daniel Parker. Daniel, welcome to the show. 
Thanks, Ben. Um, I'm glad to be on the pod. I'm, I'm not super sure about this bandwagon label, though. <laughs> yeah, I slipped that one in there. That, would, that was definitely not in the original intro. <laughs> yeah, I, I noticed that. Yeah. <laughs> I was talking to my brother because we were trying to figure out the, the first time uh, we remember watching LSU football. Yeah. So it was back in 2005. So. Okay. Well, that counts. So that you're count? not, Is that outside the range Yeah, I think you're outside the bandwagon. Like, if it had been this season, yeah. then definitely bandwagon, but we'll give, we'll give you credit for yeah, that. Yeah, well, thank you. But I, it, otherwise, accurate. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. Well, you know, we're here to talk about geothermal, which we haven't really covered too much on this show. And we know that it's a crucial part of advancing a clean energy future. Daniel, what can you tell us about geothermal energy and how does it work? Okay. So there's two main types of geothermal and it's sort of one is a, an electricity generating type. The other is more of an energy efficiency type. The electricity generating type uh, depends on more like plate tectonics, so it's sort of the large amount of heat uh, stored inside the Earth. If you think about the Earth's inner core, it's about 7,000 Kelvin, which is about 11,000 degrees Fahrenheit. So that's a lot of heat stored in molten rock, you know, all that sort of things radiating up to the, the Earth's surface. And then there, you also have to think about how subsurface levels in the Earth, maybe like 30, 40 feet down, are sort of relatively consistent uh, throughout the year, somewhere around 60 degrees or so. And, and we're talking about the lithosphere, right? That's the, that's the surface of the Earth, is that correct? Right, at least for the, 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 sub, the constant um, subsurface temperatures, yeah, like in the lithosphere. Gotcha. The, it's not, it's not 11,000 degrees, you know, 30 feet <laughs> Yeah, you don't dig down and then no. just like uncover fire. <laughs> no. So that's the first thing to remember. Great, so talk a little bit about the geothermal potential in the U.S. Right. So mostly when people think about the geothermal potential, they see these maps, usually produced by somebody like NREL, that show all these areas that uh, usually, like, um, I think that's, they usually highlight, like, mostly the western part of the United States. So areas like California, Nevada, um, Arizona, those sorts of areas, because those are closer to um, tectonic plate boundaries where there's more geothermal potential energy. So it's, it's those areas where you can have like the utility scale um, electricity generation out west. Once we get into actually describing the how electricity is generated from the geothermal potential in uh, like the utility scale sense, I think it'll make more sense why North Carolina doesn't have that potential. Cool. Because we have to be able to tap into like steam or superheated um, areas of the earth that are closer to the um, like the earth's subsurface. Whoop. Okay, well let's get into that then. So. Take us through the process of creating geothermal energy. Okay, so when you're generating electricity using uh, geothermal systems, it functions a lot like your normal utility scale electricity generating systems, so something like a nuclear power plant, like even a coal plant, because th th even those large scale um, operations use the same principle of heating something, most likely water, to generate steam that you spin a turbine with, that you spin a generator with to create electricity. But in this case, you're using heat from the earth to either heat up water or some other sort of liquid to become steam or using steam directly from the earth that's created by you know like the uh, warm rock and everything um, evaporating water in the earth itself and that happens more along uh, closer to tectonic plate boundaries out in the west and everything because it's right near like the ring of fire and everything what is the ring of fire it's the ones like the near the san andreas fault and everything okay like sure california yeah so it's like a while those volcanoes are around um, like Japan and then the rest of Eastern Asia and sort of like the West Coast of the United States. Gotcha. So like that's why there are also all those volcanoes and they have like um, 
know, earthquakes and tsunamis and things because they're closer to boundaries where, you know, there are these sort of tectonic plates like interacting with each other. Yeah. So at a utility scale geothermal facility, we're digging into the ground. Step number one, right? right. And then how are we capturing the heat that's being generated down there? And it sort of depends on whether you're using steam directly that's uh, directly g- created by the earth, like it's you know evaporating um, water, some other liquid itself, or you're pumping some sort of liquid into the earth to be evaporated, and then you're f- like feeding that into your turbine or generator. You're drilling down these large pipes into the earth's surface exe- itself, and then taking advantage of all that heat that's created, and then you're just feeding steam through you know, like a turbine or something. There's a great example in uh, California called the geysers. It's a set of 22 um, connected... Uh, geothermal systems that are all there they help create um, 725 they have a capacity of 725 megawatts wow which is massive they said it, um, it can power like the city of San Francisco whoa so this is like large-scale stuff yeah okay so how does geothermal compare in cost to other forms of utility scale energies I think uh, it can be cost competitive it just it's so very um, like natural resource dependent mm-hmm. that it's only located in specific areas like out west and in areas like Iceland and um, these other areas that are that have like the um, the temperature grading that you need to be able to do that sort of thing so it's you know cost effective because it's you I think in Iceland it's like 25% of their um, electricity generated is generated from geothermal So with the utility-scale geothermal site, we're digging down into the ground. We're potentially pumping water down there, then to be heated by the earth, which creates steam in the facility, turning turbines, and generating electricity. Right. Got you. Okay, so now we're talking about the macro scale of geothermal, but let's bring these concepts into small-scale application. How do businesses or homeowners harness and use geothermal energy? Okay. So yeah, as you were saying, you know, like the utility scale stuff is where the electricity is being generated from a geothermal source. For North Carolina and for homes and businesses themselves, they're using what we call ground source heat pumps. And that's where you're taking, you're using the somewhat average um, subsurface temperature of the earth to exchange heat either from the earth to a building or from a building back to the earth. But it's the same sort of idea where you're putting these pipes into the ground and you're exchanging heat from, once again, from a building to the ground or from the ground to a building, depending on the season. So it's sort of, instead of um, using like a traditional HVAC system and like creating the heat yourself, you're taking advantage of the heat that's either in your house, you're taking it outside where the pipes are going into the earth's subsurface, getting cooled, and then you're like, you're bringing the cooled liquid back into your house where it's gonna absorb more heat and then cool itself in a cycle. Or it's the reverse, you know, if you're trying to like cool your house. So I guess, or heat your house, sorry. Yeah, so I guess I had always thought of using the ground as kind of like an equilibrium because, you know, in the summer it's a little bit cooler, in the winter it's a little bit warmer, but why would we be taking energy, how, how are we putting energy back into the ground? That, that's one of the things you mentioned. Am I, am I incorrect or, or what, what's, the, what's the process of putting either heat or, or cooled air back into the ground? I don't understand that. No, you're right. The, um, you're taking, like you think about your house in the summer, it's going to warm up. So you're going to take, uh, if you have a ground source heat pump, you're going to tr- like send a liquid or some other sort of um, heat absorbing fluid send it through like a heat exchanger in your house where it's going to absorb, you know, like uh, the warm air and everything and pump it into the ground. And depending on your exact configuration of your heat pump, 
it'll go into something like it could go into a body of water or it could go into like the earth surface like the subsurface itself depending on hmm. how it's drilled and then while there it's going to be cooled because the like high subsurface of the earth is going to be like cooler than like the surface temperature or the temperature of your house too so it's going to be pumped back into your house and like bring some of that cooled air back into your house and like exchange that back out and like been sent, be sent through the registers and things in your air conditioning system. Gotcha. So it's a cycle where you're sending the warm air into the ground, it becomes cool, then gets recirculated into your house. Right. And it's the reverse in the winter when you're taking cold air from your house, sending it into the earth. It's going to be warmed and then sent back into your house too. It's sort of in a cycle. Let's talk a little bit about cost. So how much do typical, I mean, I know it's hard to, to say typically, but what kind of range are we talking about for the cost of a ground source heat pump in either a home or a business? Right. I think it is important to stress it's very site specific, depending on like how much area you have around the building, like the, the size of the system you're going to need, like how many pipes and things. But for about a 3,000 square foot home, all in, you're going to find a system that's about twenty-five to thirty thousand dollars, which is kind of on par with a rooftop solar installation, right? I think it's it's close to that, but the, I think the important thing to remember is like a ground source heat pump is more of like an energy efficiency um, technology. It's not really generating electricity as like a solar PV system would. So they are close, depending on the size of your PV system, but they fulfill different purposes. Do we have any utility scale geothermal in North Carolina? No, and that's the uh, that goes back to the whole like tectonic plate resource sort of thing. Since North Carolina is very far from any, we don't have enough of natural resource that we need in, in order to um, support uh, financially a utility scale geothermal electricity generating station. And is that like an East Coast thing, or is that specific to North Carolina? Is the Southwest Western part of the country more conducive, or are you finding like smaller pockets that might be better around the East Coast? If you if you're thinking of a map of the United States, you sort of slice it into thirds, going from like California, you know, t- to about New Mexico, and then maybe to about uh, like Louisiana or Mississippi. Like the far third is going to have like highest potential. That middle area, there's a little there's a little strip. I think in sort of northern Texas where there's like sort of mild potential, but then the whole right third where North Carolina and the rest of the East Coast is included is just going to be like, you know, it has no potential for a utility scale geothermal electricity generating station just because we don't have the natural resources that we need for it. But that's not to say that ground source heat pumps aren't possible in North Carolina. No, no, no. Ground source heat pumps are much more feasible for pretty much anywhere in the country. I think the, uh, since they're the subsurface temperature of the Earth is relatively consistent, like throughout the Earth's surface. You know, it doesn't depend so much on having that large temperature gradient that you need for utility-scale electricity generation. You really can um, put a ground source heat pump in pretty much any, anywhere in the United States where you have the space for it, and it's most effective in areas where there are these large differences in, like the winter and summer uh, temperatures too. So North Carolina, North Carolina is a great example, since right now it's like 30 degrees outside, I think. And nice in January, but we get up to like the hundreds in uh, the summer too. So we get to take advantage of both the heating and the cooling aspects of it. So it would work in areas like the Southwest where it gets hot and cold as well, but it would work in you know milder climates too. Your payback would just be a little longer. So what's the status of geothermal in North Carolina? 
So as we said, um, there's not the utility-scale electricity generating uh, from geothermal North Carolina. It's mostly uh, the ground source heat pumps, as we were talking about. And since uh, 2007, uh, there have been about 7,600 ground source heat pumps installed in North Carolina, which is about uh, half of the renewable energy systems installed in the state of any form. So that includes, Whoa. yeah, that includes even like utility-scale solar systems, wow, and residential uh, solar PV systems too. Really. So there's a lot. Even though they represent about half the systems installed in the state, they're less than 1% of all the total um, direct spending on renewable energy systems over that same time period. Whoa. And I'm looking at these numbers. It's not just less than 1%. It's 0.2%. I mean, yeah. that's like, I mean that, that's very insignificant comparatively. It is $30 million, so it's not nothing. I mean, that, that's quite a sizable investment. But wow. Over 50% of all the renewable energy systems installed in North Carolina are ground source heat pumps. That's right. So that they're, they're, uh, there's quite a proliferation of them across the state. If you think about the $30 million that have been spent on ground source heat pumps, that could be a decent-sized utility-scale solar PV system all by itself. Right. Right. Wow. Yeah. It just gives, gives you a sense of, of really how small these geothermal projects are, even though there are quite a few of them. Yeah. I think it's – well, the, since, since you're not trying to generate – you don't have 80 megawatts of capacity for like a geothermal you know, heat pump. Sure. It's sort of different scales. Yeah. But it just sort of shows you like how North Carolina's renewable energy technologies have developed. What are some of the structures in place to incentivize geothermal? Um, North Carolina, until the end of 2015, had a renewable energy um, tax credit that was taken advantage of for things like um, solar residential solar PV and ground source heat pumps. Then that that led to a lot of this growth that we're seeing for the like those 7,600 that we were talking about. But at the end of 2015, it expired. And what percent? And what percent tax credit was that? 35 percent, and that that included like other residential, like other renewable um, energy technologies for uh, residential uses too. Not the, not just those two. And there was also a federal tax credit that you could take advantage of for GSHPs too. But that expired at the end of 2016. So since then, growth has sort of dwindled. The federal tax credit was brought back in 2018 and is going to extend out to 2022. So there should be some more growth in GSHPs in the next uh, two years as well. So what do you see as the future for geothermal? As I was saying, there, there seems to be more and more interest in building buildings that are net zero, you know, like net zero carbon emissions or net zero electricity. And I think any sort of energy efficiency measure, like on this scale, where you're reducing something like heating and cooling, which are some of the biggest loads you have in your buildings, it should be um, should be considered, if not implemented, a lot more. I think I think we're going to see that instead of people trying to generate more electricity on site, people will be looking for ways to displace it. Yeah, and I think this seems like a very tangible one, like especially if you're if you're more forward thinking and you you think ahead and install your system as you're building your whatever, your school, you know, your home, your office, et cetera. I think this is a great way to reduce your electricity load and make it easier to get to your net zero goals. Yeah. So I think we're going to see a lot more. Well, that's great because, as you know, energy efficiency is the foundation of clean energy. And I think ideally for a clean energy future, the goal is not to generate as much electricity as we can. It's to conserve the energy that we already use and generate electricity through clean sources. Exactly. Like you're using two-pronged approach of reducing the electricity you use in general and then 
trying to uh, make that energy that you do have to use cleaner, you know, is how we're going to get to meeting our clean energy plan goals and everything. So, But you don't ever foresee a utility-scale geothermal site in North Carolina? No. We're not going to see a utility-scale electricity-generating system in, uh, in North Carolina that's based on geothermal resources. We can dream. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Yeah, I mean, it makes sense, right? I mean, it's a, it's a resource-dependent source. So if you don't have the geothermal resources, then obviously you're not going to have geothermal utility-scale projects. That's right. So it'll work for something like your home or your business, but utility-scale-wise, we got to focus on things that North Carolina does have, like solar uh, potential and wind potential, too. Great. We love solar, we love wind, and we're so happy to talk about geothermal today. This was a nice... Uh, breath of fresh air from the the normally scheduled programming so Daniel thank you so much for coming on the show we learned a lot you know geothermal is something that I think flies under the radar especially in North Carolina because you don't have that generating opportunity you're really talking about energy efficiency but as we've said on multiple episodes energy efficiency is where clean energy starts so it's so great that you were able to bring that perspective today. And thanks for all the research that you've done, uh, because I'm sure it's really helpful for our listeners that probably, like me, are pretty unfamiliar with geothermal. It's just not something that, especially in North Carolina, we're talking about very often. But as you can see, it represents about 50% of all the renewable energy systems in our state. So it's definitely important for us to talk about. And I really appreciate you bringing that perspective. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. And there you have it, folks, the 22nd episode of the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast. Bringing the latest in clean energy right to your ears. Yes, sir. Now, this was a great episode where we really learned a lot about something brand new. Yeah, I mean, we haven't really talked about geothermal on this show, so really excited to show something new to our listeners, and I learned a lot. I mean, you could tell from my questions, like, I was really just trying to learn what geothermal was. I'm not I'm not super familiar with it, to be honest, Correct. so uh, glad to really get Daniel on the show because he, he really knows his stuff on this. He really knew a bunch. Yeah, he's like an encyclopedia or something. <laughs> he, he knew a bunch about it. Yeah, and so, Jarvis, what's your key takeaway for this show? I think my key takeaway for this show was that even though geothermal is a small part of North Carolina's clean energy economy, um, it really does represent about 50% of all energy systems in our great state. So therefore, I do think it's very important to keep geothermal in mind. Yeah, definitely. Got to keep it on the radar, not necessarily because it is a huge economic driver, but when you talk about the sheer number of systems and the fact that that, as Daniel was saying, was probably going to increase as we continue to get better building performance standards Mm -hmm. and people wanting to increase their energy efficiency, I think you can definitely see a potential increase in the future of geothermal. Now, uh, Ben, what was your key takeaway from today's show? So my key takeaway draws on what Daniel was saying about the lack of potential for utility scale geothermal in North Carolina. So we probably won't see utility scale geothermal in North Carolina, but even though that might be a bit disappointing to some, for me, it just illustrates the fact that when you talk about clean energy resources, you really have to understand the environment that you're working in 
And as opposed to natural gas or coal, where you can really put those kinds of plants anywhere and ship the coal in or ship the natural gas in, mm -hmm. you really have to understand and know your environment and know what resources you have. So even though we don't necessarily have geothermal utility scale potential, you know, North Carolina has the greatest offshore wind potential of mm -hmm. any state on the East Coast. And we don't even have any offshore wind projects yet. We only have one onshore utility scale project. So it's just really interesting for me to think about the resources that we have to understand in order to progress clean energy. Correct. And definitely it's a process. It's, it's something, but it's, it's exciting to know that there's so much to come. Yeah. If that makes sense. Now, uh, that was an awesome takeaway from the smartest guy that I know. <laughs> stop it. Stop <laughs> it. Stop it. Uh, would you mind elaborating on our next guest? Yes, yes. So our next guest is Dave Rogers from the Sierra Club. He's with the Beyond Coal campaign. And what that's doing is working to decommission coal plants and get coal off the grid, which I think is really important because we talk a lot about proactive strategies for getting more clean energy on the grid, mm -hmm. but equally as important as getting clean energy on the grid is getting fossil fuels off the grid. Correct. So we're really excited to have Dave on the show. He's an expert on like coal security and decommissioning of coal. So really excited to bring that perspective on the show and you'll just have to stay tuned for the next episode to listen to it. Most definitely. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for listening to the show. We hope you learned something. I definitely learned something. Jarvis was, was sitting in. Yep. I'm sure he learned something. He's typing away. <laughs> <I learned laughs> yeah. So thanks so much for listening to us and we'll see you next time. Have a good one.